Okay, it's 6.30, so why don't we go ahead and, uh, and start on time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time to be able to open your holy word uh, together, and I thank you for each person who's here. We pray that you would stir our hearts uh, to a greater affection for you and for the truth and for the Lord Jesus, and especially as we look at this great chapter, uh, John chapter 17, is such a, a gold mine of, of truth and promises and uh, wonders and uh, we pray that we would rejoice in what it says, what it teaches us about your sovereignty, about uh, the deity of Jesus Christ, about um, the efficacy of his prayers for his church, and uh, the glory uh, that he has, and uh, the mission that he had coming into the world, and that was to save his people from their sins. So Lord, help us to see uh, this wonderful window into the mind of our Savior, of God incarnate, uh, on the night before he was crucified and we pray you would help us to learn and uh, rejoice in what it says and to find great peace and comfort in um, our Lord and what he prayed and what he did. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Okay we're on John chapter 17 in case you couldn't tell from uh, what I just prayed about. Um, John 17. Come on in. Everyone's avoiding sitting right by me here, so there's seats right. Well, you know, I can't hear, so I'll be right here. <laughs> and if I can't hear you, that's bad. <laughs> okay, we're on John 17, verse 1. So just as a kind of a reminder of where we've been in the Gospel of John. Uh, John uh, 1, verses 1 through 18 is the prologue, remember that? And then John 1, 19, all the way through the end of John 12, uh, there are seven what that we find recorded there? Sign, signs or wonders. Yeah, there's seven grand miracles. Does anyone remember what some of those were? So the great miracles that are recorded? There's seven of them. Water into wine. The man born blind in John 9, yes. Any others? Uh, man with a withered hand. Man with a withered hand, mm-hmm. There's a few more. I'm sorry? Feeding of the 5,000. Feeding of the 5,000, John 6. And remember, what's significant about that, that particular miracle, the feeding of the 5,000? It's in all four Gospels. It's in all four Gospels. It's the only miracle other than the resurrection that's in all four Gospels. And uh, I've always wondered why that is. But I think it it may be, I don't know, but it may be because it's one of the most astounding things that's ever happened in the history of the world. Um, So it's a pretty, pretty amazing sign. So there's also the great I am statements. Remember all that? The I am statements. What are some of those? I'm the light of the world. John 8, 12. Anyone? I'm sorry? I am the gate. I am the, the gate. Okay, the, the, I'm sorry? Bread. I'm the bread of life. Mm-hmm. Good shepherd. The good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. Mm-hmm. The way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Mm-hmm. There's two more. The true I'm the true vine. Mm-hmm. And then the one he says at the tomb of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and, and the life. And of course, that's the last great miracle that he does there before the close of his ministry, at least in John's recording of it. But the end of John chapter 12 is really the close of the book of signs. And then you get into what theologians and commentators call the book of glory. So John 13 is, is with the instance where Jesus does what for his disciples? He washes their feet, okay? And then in John... 14, 15, and 16, you have the most detailed teaching in the whole Bible about whose ministry? The Holy Spirit. 
Okay, so you want to understand who is the Holy Spirit and what is his purpose and what, what does he do? John 14, 15, and 16, very, very important key um, chapters of God's revelation uh, in Scripture. They're, they're unique in the whole New Testament as far as really detailed instructions about uh, who the Holy Spirit is and his, his work and his ministry. Okay, and then that brings us to John chapter 17. So after the what's called the upper room discourse in John 14, 15, and 16, then we get to John 17, which is typically referred to as what? The high priestly prayer. The high priestly prayer. Why, why do people call it that? That's right. That's right. Yep. Just like the, the priests in the Old Testament do. Now, Jesus is not a priest in the Aaronic or Levitical order. <laughs> Who, whose order is he a priest in? Melchizedek. And who in the world is that? <laughs> yeah. He appears in two verses. In, in uh, what is it, Genesis 14? After the slaughter of the kings where Abraham and his group rescues Lot when he's kidnapped. And then it just says, and Melchizedek, king of El Shaddai, of God most high, comes out and he has bread and wine. And he's a type. He's a, a prefigurement of the coming of Jesus. And why is the way he appears and disappears, why, how is that significant, at least according to the book of Hebrews? He has no recorded genealogy. Exactly. There's no genealogy of him. Okay, and so that's that's a prefiguring of, of what? Of the fact that... Jesus has a biological father. That, 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 but also Jesus is God. He's eternal. Okay, he has no... Without father or mother, you know, in, in that sense, his divine nature is eternal. Okay, so... He was not the pre-incarnate Christophany. I'm not sure if I believe that. I think he was a real person. I, I He probably, probably wasn't. Yeah, like the angel of the hour of the, of the Lord. Yeah, but he probably was a real person. But the fact that there's no genealogy and there's also no record of what? His death. Okay, so he comes in, under the scene, no genealogy. There's no recorded uh, instance where Melchizedek dies. And Hebrews chapter 7 explains Jesus holds his priesthood in that order because Jesus also will never, what? Die. And so that priesthood cannot be passed on to anyone else. That's why um, there, the idea that there would be priests today really is blasphemous. It really is blasphemous. Uh, for a man to claim to be a priest um, in, a, in the sense of being a go-between between God and man. What, what was one of the great truths that the Reformation recovered? The what of all believers? The priesthood of all believers. And what, what was the significance of that? Why did they say that? I'm sorry. That's right. Because I'm in Christ, and Christ is the one high priest in the whole universe. That's why Luther said, every man his own priest before God, in a sense. Because we go directly to the Father through the Lord Jesus. Because once we're united to him, there's no need for a human priesthood anymore. And so that's why um, you have pastors and elders. You don't have priests. Okay? If you want to see me, you know, really... Uh, go apoplectic on you, call me father or something like that. Um, it's my, one, of my, one of the best Spurgeon quotes ever. Someone asked that man one time, how come, what, would you ever wear a clerical collar? You know what Spurgeon said to that? He said, I would rather be mistaken for the devil himself than for a Roman Catholic priest. <laughs> so yeah, how to make friends and influence people. Yeah. Okay, so let's go ahead and look. So here you have Jesus's prayer. Oh, yes, sir. I'm sorry? 
Uh, let's look at it real quick. Look at, look at, I believe it's Genesis 14. Yeah, look at this real quick here. Yeah, that's a good question, Leonard. He, he steps out of the shadows here. Yeah, at the end of Genesis 14, it's verse 18 and through 20. He steps out of nowhere and then disappears. And the only other place he appears in the Old Testament is in what Psalm? Psalm 110. And as far as the Psalms go in the New Testament, what Psalm is quoted more than any other Psalm in the entire New Testament? Psalm 110, and that verse about Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And the thing is, if we didn't have the New Testament, we probably would have a real hard time understanding what any of this part means. But Leonard, look at verse 18 there. You see it, everybody? Then Melchizedek, and by the way, what does um, Melchizedek mean in Hebrew? I'm sorry? It, it means a king of righteousness, because Melchi means king, and Zedek is righteousness. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Um, Jerusalem, Salem is short for Shalom, which is Hebrew for what? Peace. Okay. So then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And of course, that's that word. Remember the um, Amy Grant song, El Shaddai? That, that's what that is in Hebrew. He was the priest of El Shaddai. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Okay, and then he, he disappears, and that's all we hear about him. And then his name is used in Psalm 110, where God the Father is speaking to Jesus. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. But if you want to get the most detailed description of that, Hebrews chapter 7, the book of Hebrews. Do you guys want to look at that or not? We can. This is kind of free-flowing. Let's, let's look at it. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 real quick. Hebrews chapter 7 is pretty remarkable um, chapter because it really, it really gives a, a very, very helpful explanation of this. Okay, see verse 1 there of Hebrews chapter 7? <clears throat> For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, referring back to Genesis 14 there, that passage we just read, priest of the most high God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all first being translated king of righteousness that's what Melchizedek means and then also king of Salem meaning king of peace without father without mother without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like the son of God remains a priest continually Okay, now look at verse 4 there. Because think about this. The reason that's a prefigurement of, of the priesthood of Christ is the Levitical and Aaronic priests were always prevented by what from continuing on in their office? They died. Okay, But once Jesus rises from the dead, I guess I'm getting the chills thinking about this. I'm sorry? Once he rises from the dead, he will never die again. And so he's always there functioning as our high priest. And that's why... As Christians and as a minister, you point people to him. He's the only priest that can help you. Um, I, you know, God help you if you're dependent on me for anything. Um, but Jesus is the one who can be your high priest before God. Okay, look at verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, Though they, uh, ha- though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived 
from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So that's a reference to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was not a Levite, was he? I mean, he's long before there is Levi's even born. Okay, so look at verse 7. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who received, receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. Okay, so because Levi was a descendant of Abraham, in a sense, Levi is paying tithes through his great-grandfather Abraham to Melchizedek. What, what, what he's emphasizing here is the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood to the Levitical one. Okay, because Levi was paying tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. You following this? Okay, look at verse, uh, or, um, yeah, verse 10. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him, there in Genesis 14. Verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Okay, so, he, so there you have a recognition. No one was actually made perfect by those repetitious sacrifices of the law. If they, if they had, they would have stopped offering them. And what's unique about Jesus' sacrifice and contrary distinction? Once for all. Which is why we don't have an altar upstairs. We have a table where we remember the, the one sacrifice that put an end to all of it. Okay. Remember, I, I've told you all this story. I, I really believe I was converted by Hebrews 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. I, just, I was reading through the, the New Testament when I was about 18 years old and got stuck here. and just kept reading it over and over and over again and just kind of seeing what, what Jesus did. If you think you can add anything to this, that is the highest form of blasphemy you could ever possibly think of. Because it is only what he does that saves us. Okay, We simply receive and rest upon it. Nothing I do adds anything to this. Okay, look at verse uh, 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. Who's that talking about? I'm sorry? The tribe of Judah, which is where, which is the tribe from, from whence who came? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, Jesus was not a Levite. He was a descendant of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so look at verse um, 15. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, and here's a citation from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. That would be the Old Testament way of sacrifices and, and all that stuff that's now been set aside. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Verse 20, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so who appointed Jesus to be this priest in this order? I'm sorry? No, God the Father did. You are a priest forever in this order, in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, look at verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. And what does surety mean? 
a guarantee, a guarantor, someone who steps in, I, I'm assuming, legal responsibility for this. Okay, verse 23. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. How many of you have had this happen? Hi, we're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> Elder so-and-so who can't even shave yet. Okay. <laughs> And what do they claim to be? They claim to be priests in what order? In the Melchizedek order. Yeah. 18-year-olds claim to be priests in the order of Melchizedek. It's, it, it, it's just it's horrifying to consider how blasphemous that actually is. But look at verse 24 again there. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. That, that Greek term, I remember looking at this years ago, that Greek term means not able to be transferred to another. There is one priest in this order, in the order of Melchizedek, and there will always be one for eternity, forever. It can't be given to someone else. Okay, verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, we can't bring another sacrifice or bring anything else. After the cross and he enters into heavenly glory, he presents that finished work and obtains eternal redemption for his people. And that's the end of it. That's the end of it. That's why there's no sacrifice for sin. Look at verse 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's for this he did once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever okay so he doesn't have his own sin he's got to deal with too like the former priests this is the perfect one who's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Okay, and that's why he's the one that everything was always pointing to him. So, all right. So there, there's the background. So let's look at John 17 now. So here we have Jesus praying, functioning in this, this office of high priest, praying for his people, and praying for what's going to happen the next day there at the cross. So this is a, an incredible, wonderful passage of scripture. Okay, John 17, verse 1. Here, just remember where we are. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane here. So this is, this is probably what the other Gospels record. Remember it says he went out of stone's throw away to, to pray and he fell down. And um, we don't get a, a real window into what he was praying about, but we do here in John 17. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. Now, what, what do we normally do when we pray? We, we always bow our heads, don't we? What does Jesus do here? Yeah, he looks straight up to he- into heaven. Isn't that interesting? Commentators go wild with that. <laughs> it's like, but it is, it's an interesting thing because our instinct is to bow, but his, his wasn't. His was to look up to the heavens and to address his father directly. Father, the hour has come. What's the significance of that? How many times did Jesus' enemies want to lay their hands on him? Over and over again. And why couldn't they? His hour had not yet come. What do, you, what do we see in that? He's in complete control. Total control of everything. And think, think about all of the motives and all the agendas that, that go into 
him eventually being crucified. And if the Jews had had their way, if they had executed him, how would they have killed him? How did they kill people? Stoning. But how did he have to die to pay for our sins? He had to be hung on a tree, just like it says in the Old Testament law, curses, see who hangs on a tree. So even all the banter and all the politicking and all the scheming and plotting, like you said, he's in control of all of it. It's like he's standing there silent, and these guys have no idea that their motives and their thoughts and everything are all under the, the umbrella of the sovereign plan and decree. Isn't that encouraging to your heart? You think about your own life, there's no, no part of it is outside of God's control. I mean, it's easy when we're left to, to ourselves and our own thoughts to start questioning God and questioning things. But he's in control of absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. Okay, so the hour has come, he says. So here, the hour hadn't come yet, but now it's here. And what, what is the significance of the hour that's come? What does it mean for him? He's going to lay down his life. That's right. Time has come. Basically, he's saying it's time for me to die. It is time for me to be handed over, for me to be beaten and scourged and mocked and crucified. Basically, everything he'd been telling his disciples ever since Peter first confessed that he was the Christ. Remember that? From that moment, he starts telling them over and over again, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed in Jerusalem and is going to be scourged and killed and crucified, and the third day will rise again. And what was their reaction to that? That's never going to happen to you. Yeah, no way. No, this will never happen to you. you know, quit, quit being such a downer. Okay, you remember what did Jesus say to Peter when he told him, "This will never happen." Get behind. Yeah, get behind me, Satan. So, okay, so a lot, a lot there, even in those first few phrases. So then he says, he prays, "Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you." Okay, in what ways is the hour, his death? How is that going to glorify him and his Father? I'm sorry? The redemption of the... The redemption of, of all his people, yes. How else? He's faithful. Death is destroyed. But what? He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his... That's right. All the prophecies, I mean, everything in the Old Testament, the whole thing. You know, the whole sacrificial system, the promise that God made Adam and Eve and the serpent, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. Okay, that's about to happen. How, how else does it glorify him? We could talk about this for a long time, but how else does it glorify him? Cross kingdom is being ushered in. Hmm? Cross kingdom is being ushered in. Is kingdoms being ushered in? It's going to grow and expand all the way around here. I always think what an amazing thing it is that we're sitting here talking about this. Yeah. I mean, our language didn't even exist, what, six or seven hundred years ago? And here we have Bibles that are nicely translated into our language, and we're repentant and have faith in Christ. I mean, does that not glorify God, the fact that we're believers right now, right here? So many ways that this glorifies the Lord Jesus, the accomplishment of his mission. And so he's praying, you know, the hours come. He's, you can tell he's troubled, but he's passionate. He's excited to get this done. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. Notice that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that the redemption is Trinitarian. All, all three persons are involved. It's not one against the other or whatever. Um, some... Uh, Eastern Orthodox person left a nasty comment on a video I did uh, saying the idea of penal substitutionary atonement is is so twisted and evil it makes God into a villain and everything I was like uh, yeah, yeah I read that guy's comment um, but <laughs> why do we have to believe in a 
penal substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? What does penal substitutionary atonement mean? What are we talking about? Took the penalty. What and what is the penalty? Death. Death. Okay. There are people who actually say they believe the Bible who do not believe that Jesus paid for our sins. So, and I've done. I don't know. I, yeah, I, it's very strange. There are different theories. I'm sorry. Eastern Orthodox holds mainly to what's called the Christus Victor, which is true. Yeah, it is true. Yeah, that's right. It, it's he. He's victorious over his enemies and victorious over death only because it does pay the penalty. That, that's the thing that, that's missing from that. But, yes, I thought you were saying. My, my father, when he, before he was a Christian, he used to vehemently deny any kind of penal substitution or atonement. Mm-hmm. He would say that the reason Jesus died was so that people would remember him that long later because he was just such a great guy. And I was like, why did they kill him? Yeah, how does that help us remember he was a great guy? Yeah, it doesn't make Uh, any sense. 2,000 years later, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's... It does. In the Old Testament, like sacrificing animals and such, there's like, they think God is so great, and that's just so disgusting. There's no way a good God would would command people to kill animals and sacrifice them. So you just got (laughs) to understand, like, the time, like, they were sacrificing babies. And yeah, other things yeah. like animals were nothing compared to what all they were sacrificing, and this was this was normal then. So. It's it's the goodness of God that yes. requires Him to punish sin. Yes. Yeah. He if He allowed people unrepentant in their sins into heaven, He would not be good then. Right. So it's it's ironic. In the name of protecting God's goodness, they they basically are saying He He can be not good and let people into heaven. It's pretty pretty ironic. Okay, so there's the first verse. Glorify your son, excuse, glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. In verse 2, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And who's that talking about? The elect, God's elect people. Now, one thing that's interesting, has anyone here ever read through the canons of Dort? I keep recommending it. There's copies of it. There's copies of it upstairs. This little, little tiny paperback. You could read it. You could read it in one afternoon. The first time I ever read that many years ago, the, the opening, remember, it's actually not in the order of tulip. Remember what it actually spells if you actually put the acronym in order in the cans of Dort? It's ULTIP. U-L-T-I-P, which makes, actually makes more theological sense. Unconditional election is first. And one thing they say there is that the Arminian party, in denying that, in denying that God has unconditionally elected who he's going to save, they said the Arminians deny the existence of a church. Why would they say that? When when the ancient creeds affirm, we believe in the holy church. We believe in the church. That's true. There would be no church. That's true. Okay. The, remember the church, we divided into two separate ways of thinking about it. There's the blank church and the blank church. Visible and invisible. And which is ultimately, in the ultimate sense, the true church is the invisible church. And what is the invisible church? All of the elect. It's here, you wanna, what is the invisible church? Look at verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. 
everyone given to Jesus, given to the Son by the Father before time began, that is the church, the invisible church. What does the word church mean? I'm sorry, assembly, congregation. If you actually break it into its individual parts, ecclesia, what is it referring to? The called out ones. Okay? So the church are the ones that were given by the Father to the Son before time began. That's the church. And I remember reading that thinking, what? The Arminians don't even believe that there is a church? And then it kind of hit me, yeah. They don't believe that the Father gave people by name, individually, to Jesus before time. They don't believe that God elected anybody to be saved. Yeah, they don't believe in a church. You see the point? Okay, this is what the church is. How many of these people are going to make it into heaven? All of them. Why? Because his blood is sufficient. Because his blood is sufficient for them, and also because that was God's intention. God the Father, the triune God's intention for the incarnation was not to make salvation theoretically possible for everybody. It was to save his people from their sins. It was to save those elected by God individually from all eternity to be saved. Is that fair? Is there anything unfair about that? I used to think that that was unfair. <laughs> okay, what, what's fair? What if God decided, okay, fine, I, I won't be gracious, I'll just be fair to everybody. What does that mean then? Yeah, heaven's going to be really lonely. There'll, there'll be one in it, Jesus, by himself. There will be no people there. Okay, and in, the, in all seriousness, man just doesn't understand what the fall did to him. The fall made us unable to repent, unable to believe. And the real reason we're not able to, you know, the real reason that we're not able to is because we don't want to. If God doesn't change my heart, I will never have a desire to turn from sin to Christ. That desire will never be there. And what do we always do? What does everybody do every day of their lives? We always do what? We, we all sin, but we always do what? Whatever's the strongest what in us, we will do. The strongest desire. Remember the R.C. Sproul illustration I've shared with you? Well, that book, Willing to Believe by R.C. Sproul, is excellent. Because I never really fully got this until he used the ice cream analogy. Remember the ice cream story? Sproul would stand in front of his refrigerator. He's like, pardon me. Really wants to lose some weight. Part of me really wants some ice cream. And he's like, and I would just stand there. And I knew, philosophically speaking, biblically speaking, anthropologically speaking, in terms of God's decrees of sovereignty, at the end of the day, whichever desire is stronger is the one that's going to win. <laughs> so if I really am wanting to lose a little bit of weight, I'll make that decision. And if I really don't care today and really want to taste the ice cream, I'm going to make that decision. And then he makes the application. The fallen man loves and serves sin he's not going to choose to turn away from it unless god changes that desire and who does god change their desire who does he do that for his elect people his church these people so think think about that he's going to go on here in this prayer this amazing prayer he's going to go on here to actually pray for you if you're a true believer he's thinking he actually is praying for you here I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, talking about his disciples. So it's pretty, pretty amazing. Jesus is praying for his church here. Okay, so I, one of the ways that he's going to be glorified is he's going to give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay, so 
eternal life is knowing Christ, is having that fellowship with him. And when we believe the gospel, when we, we believe Jesus is sufficient to save us, that fellowship that, we, that was broken before by our sin, that's reestablished. Okay? Remember um, the Shorter Catechism. What is the misery of that estate wherein two man fell? All mankind by their fall lost what? Communion, Communion with God. Okay? That's the most miserable condition we could be in. All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Okay? And the catechism would be a real, a real downer if it just stopped there, right? <laughs> but the next question asks, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And the answer is, God having, out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. And then it asks that glorious question, who is the redeemer of God's elect? And what does it say? You remember? The, that's right. The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continues to be God and man, two distinct natures, one person, forever. Okay? So that's eternal life, is knowing Him, knowing that Redeemer, that Mediator, that Savior, and being reconciled to God the Father. And of course, when Jesus taught His disciples to pray, how do we address God? Our Father. Okay? And that's, that's very unique. Um, in the truth, because, you know, the Muslims don't address God as father, okay, and man's religions don't, don't believe in that kind of intimacy um, with their deities that don't exist, um, but when it comes to the true God, his love for his people is so deep, so vast, that he invites us and commands us even to address him as our father, our adoptive father, okay, you see how much he loves you here, how much he loves his people here, that he would do this, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 4, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Obviously, it's, it's about to be finished, but he's speaking of it in the past tense as if it's a, it's a done deal. Because guess what? It is a done deal. He, he is going to do it. Okay. Verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you, before the world was. What is that an affirmation of? I'm sorry? His pre-existence. That's right. Okay, Jesus, remember, Jesus is about how old his, in his humanity? About how old is he here? About 30, 32, something like that, 33 maybe. And yet he's saying, Father, glorify me with the glory I have with you, not, you know, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, but before you ever even made anything. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was made. Remember the opening verses of John's gospel? What does the opening verse of John's gospel say? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Okay, so in the beginning, and of course, what's that mirroring? The opening, the opening phrase of John's gospel. In the beginning, what does that remind you of? What Old Testament book? Genesis. Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John's gospel, talking about Jesus, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14, and the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, added that human nature to himself. So here you see a manifestation of his deity. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. Isn't that astounding to you, what that is saying there? The glory which I had with you before the world was, meaning before it existed, before there was matter created yet, I, I had glory with you. And he's looking forward to going back to, to heaven to being with his father. Okay, look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Now here, he's, he's really um, addressing his disciples, not really the church per se. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Okay, so the words that Jesus gave them, they kept them, they believed them. Okay, so that's an important concept there. And the disciples believe that Jesus came forth from the, the one true God, from God the Father. Okay, verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Okay, so who, he, he makes a real clear particularity to who he's praying for here. Who's he praying for? Is anyone else burning up in here? Yes. Is it hot? Something I've noticed that that temperature thing, um, sixty three, feels really nice down here. It's on like it's on, it was on like seventy. Seventy is more like ninety five. It feels like. But so he's not praying for the whole world. He's not praying for every individual in the entire planet. He's praying for his disciples here. Okay, verse ten. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Notice that divine title that he uses there, Holy Father. It's very important that, that we recognize that is a divine title. Now, what person in the world um, arrogates that title to themselves? The Pope of Rome is called the Holy Father. Okay, so that's a, a title that is reserved for God, the Father. Okay, so you watch out, watch out for that. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Okay, now, how many churches are there in the world? There's one, ultimately. There's one church. Now, it has different denominational expressions, right? But ultimately, there's one body of Christ in the world. There's one church in the world. So when Jesus says this, is he, is he praying this, that they may be one as we are? Is he praying that as if to say, boy, I sure do hope it turns out like that. Yeah. Is there a real oneness to all of Christ's disciples across all denominations and across all nations? Yes. Yeah, of course. Okay, And I'm sure you all have had experiences where you've met someone for the very first time and as you start talking about the things of God and about the gospel, you know you've got a brother or sister. It doesn't really matter where they came from or what the, the denominational label is. But when you start talking to a brother or sister in the Lord, no matter where they go to church, 
once you establish that connection in the gospel, it's, it's a precious thing. It's a really wonderful thing. And I've had that happen with people from all kinds of different um, you know, Christian churches through the years. But when you have the gospel in common, there is that oneness of, of all of Christ's disciples. Okay, verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. So here he's talking about his disciples there, because who's the son of perdition? That's Judas Iscariot, okay? That the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, verse 13, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So why is that going to cause people to hate, hate them? You think? Different belief systems. Okay, different belief systems. But, why, but everyone's got a different belief system, though. Why, why in particular, are Christians going to be singled out and hated? Shining the light into the darkness. Okay. Where the light that we have shine, shines in the darkness to spell some of the darkness. Why else? We belong to Christ. Mm-hmm. And Satan hates Christ. So mm-hmm. Back to Genesis. I'm sorry? Back to Genesis. Yes, the whole antithesis, the the enmity, that hatred. You know, I remember looking that up like in, in Genesis 3.15, when God speaking to the serpent, to Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden, he uses the uh, Hebrew word eva. And it's the leading um, term, it's a noun in Genesis 3.15. It says, hatred I will put between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That term eva in Hebrew means hatred with a desire to kill. Hatred with a desire to murder. What happens in Genesis 4? Cain kills his brother. Why? It's such a strange motive, but why does he kill him? Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's wasn't. Yeah. So Abel didn't like give him a wedgie or pick on him when they were kids or something. <laughs> he killed his brother because his brother was righteous. Because God accepted him and didn't accept him. And so Cain rises up and murdered his brother. It's an amazing thing to me to, to consider that. Like, it's not like you provoke someone by being mean to them or by shunning them or mistreating them. Your existence as a Christian, itself bothers people. Once they know who you are and where you stand and what you believe, that is going to drive people nuts. It's going to make people really not like you at times. Not all the time, but there's going to be times you're going to feel that hatred. Okay, your, your life is a walking rebuke. Your existence will offend people. You know, that's happened before. I've, I've had that happen before. It's like, what how do you try to, you know, befriend someone when you're, the fact that your heart is beating bothers them because you're a Christian and they know you condemn this and you condemn it. They know what you stand for and it bothers them. Okay, so Jesus is saying here, that's going to happen. Look at verse 14 again. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. What does it mean to be of the world? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Children of wrath. What was that? Children of wrath. Children of wrath, sure. Dead fish. You're dead fish? Dead fish illustration. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that great illustration. There's a little book um, called Flowers from a Puritan's Garden. Spurgeon read all of Thomas Manton's sermons and pulled all the best illustrations out. He has a really good illustration about dead fish, about people that just go with the flow in life. And he says, you know, um, li- living fish can some kind, sometimes they can swim the same direction that the stream's going, but they can also swim against it if they want. But dead fish always go the same direction. And he says, that's what people are like that don't know Christ. They're dead fish. Where are they? Wherever the stream takes them. They're, the first thing they're concerned about, what is popular today? What does public opinion say? And that's what they want. They want to be liked by the world. They want to have the world's priorities. They want to, whatever's hip and cool and with it or, or whatever, that's where I'll be. And Jesus knows here, if you keep my word, meaning you read it, understand it, believe it, and it, it informs the way you live and the way you act and the way you think and dress and prioritize your time and everything else, that's going to bother people. That's going to be real different from where all the dead fish are going. You're going to be swimming against the stream. You know, my parents uh, got me a t-shirt when I was a little kid, and it, um, it was uh, Romans 12 too. do not be conformed, it said on the bottom of the shirt, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's all these terrifying looking fish all swimming this direction, and then there's this little tiny Christian fish trying to swim that way. And I always thought that was kind of a cool-looking T-shirt, because mostly because of the evil-looking fish. I thought they were cool-looking. But as I got older and thought about that again, I thought that really is kind of what it is. There's like all these, everyone's going this way, and here, if you're a Christian, if the Lord has called you and changed your heart and regenerated you, you're trying to swim the other direction everyone else is swimming. And they're going to notice you swimming against that. And they're not going to like that. I mean, it's such an incredible... Look, look at verse 14 again. The world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So if we're his disciples, Jesus is not of the world if we're his disciples, we're not going to be of the world either. We're going to stand out from it and be different from it. We're going to swim against the current. All the dead fish are going this way, and we're trying to swim against all of it. Okay. And we're not supposed to try and leave the stream either. Yeah. No, no, no monastic communities or anything like that. Remember Luther? Luther even said that didn't work anyway. <laughs> Remember what he said about going into the monastery? He's like, I went into the monastery to escape all my sins, and then I realized they all went in with me. The, the, the goal, the thing we've got to do, and he, he even said, monasticism really fosters a self-centered way of life, because what, what is the thing you're focused on in the monastery? Me. Okay? And then, of course, Luther ends up doing what later? He gets married and has a bunch of kids, and, and it's like either you're going to learn how to be unselfish or life's going to be terrible. Okay? But he learned that. The primary arena of sanctification is people, is other people, is the human beings in your life. Okay, so yeah, like you said, Joseph, he prayed that we would not be taken out of the world. I don't want you to leave the world. I don't want you to, to, to get away from everything because salt and light can only preserve things if they're what? Close to them. Okay. Remember a guy used an illustration. He, would get, he gave a talk on being salt, and, it, and this is a very effective illustration, although I, would, I certainly wouldn't do this in a sermon, but pulls out of a cooler this huge piece of steak and then gets out this rubbing salt 
and is like rubbing it into the steak, like the whole time he's talking. And it certainly was memorable. And his point was, you got to be up against people. You got to be, be near people in order to be, have that salty property that preserves people and things like that. Does that make sense? Okay. If the salt's always over there and, and the stuff you're supposed to be preserving is over there and they never come in contact, the salt's not going to be preserving anything or seasoning anything. Okay. Okay. I want to be faithful to time. Anyone have any comments or thoughts or anything? Platitudes of piety they want to share? <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for, for being here. Let's, I'll close this in prayer. Father, thank you for Jesus's prayer and, uh, Help us reflect on everything, every, every phrase, every line in here. Um, that his hour came and he prayed for glory because it, it's a glorious thing. That, that the existence of the church and the fact that one day he will present it spotless, blameless before you on the day of judgment. What a blessed thing it is to be part of that. And we thank you for the glory that he has now, that he had with you before the world even existed. God the Son, the eternal Son of the living God. And we thank you that he has finished that work and that he has redeemed his people. And we pray that as the elect are gathered together through evangelism and through outreach and through discipleship and preaching the gospel far and wide, we pray that Jesus will be glorified more and more as more and more darkness is dispelled and as the true knowledge of the true God covers the earth more and more. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.